When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, if you've had a bladder leak today, listen up. I get it. I tried pills and pads for years but couldn't find relief until I found Axonix Therapy. It's a tiny device that put me back in control of my bladder. Why not see if it could work for you? Visit findrealrelief.com. That's findrealrelief.com. Consult a bladder specialist to find out if Axonix is right for you. Results and experiences may vary. For more information about safety and potential risks, go to findrealrelief.com. Hello and welcome to episode 136 of Barooney Man. This episode I'm talking to Mary Stokes, the blues singer who has been performing and releasing music for the last I don't know, 30 years or whatever, and playing all over Ireland and abroad and played with John Lee Hooker, uh, Taj Mahal and Bo Diddley. And it's a fantastic conversation, not just about the blues, but uh, general uh, stuff indeed as well. So I won't take too long uh, on this introduction because we talk quite a bit on this chat. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I will do. I'm going to uh, play you a little bit of a sketch show that I'm putting out at the minute with the Dublin Comedy Improv. It's called DICTV Radio and it's on Spotify and all of the podcast platforms that you can possibly think of. So here's a little clip. What's it say? Court order to arrest Jesse Dillon out on Buzzard's Peak. You say Jesse Dillon? Yep. Seems like he had a run-in with Elijah Bardbongan who owns the fancy pastry store in town. You know Jesse Dillon? Jesse Dillon don't take to being arrested. You might want backup. You got a horse? Tied up outside. Buzzard's Peak, you say? That's quite a ride. Oh, easy, boy. Easy. All right. All right, boy. Jesse Dillon? Who wants to know? Mike Strider, U.S. Marshal. I got a court order to arrest you. For what? Elijah Bardbongen, who owns the fancy pastry store in town, says you were in there last Saturday after service and ate one of his apple flaps without paying. Damn it. He had a sign up saying spend a dollar fifty, get a free apple flap. He says you only spent a dollar forty-nine. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't. I did eat one of his apple flats, and if you want to take me in over that, well, I guess you're going to have to use your gun. Well, now, Jesse, I don't want to kill a man over an apple flat, but by the letter of the law, you did wrong by Elijah Bardbongan, and I got a court order to bring you in. I guess it's gonna be that way, huh? I guess it is. <coughs> what is that smell? Sorry, mister. The excitement of being in a gunfight made me fart. 
I hope you don't mind. No, not that. The other smell. Kind of like cinnamon and pear. Well, no, that's from my cinnamon, pear, and puff pastry I put in the oven just before you knocked. Well, that's why I'm wearing this apron and nothing else. They should be ready now. Mind if I try one? Sure. I'm still gonna have to kill you if you try and bring me in. I'll just go and get them out of the oven. What you gonna do now, Mike? Phineas, how did you get here? I ran here. Well, now that you're here, you can just run on back into town and fetch Elijah Bordbong and give him a piggyback out here right away. Well, Elijah, what do you think? Not bad. Maybe a bit too much salt, but not bad. Say one more bad word about my puff pastry, and you'll have to answer to Mr. Smith and Wesson. Whoa, now hang on there, Jesse. Elijah Bardbongen, could you come to an agreement about selling Jesse Dillon's cinnamon pear puff pastries in your store if he gave you the first batch free? Now hang on. I don't like to let a man off for breaking the law. Truth is, he did steal an apple flap right from under my nose. But these cinnamon pear puff pastries. I could sell these and pay five cents a pastry wholesale. How about it, Jesse? I guess I could do with the money. And next to shooting up the town, my passion is baking pastry. Say, Phineas, care to give me a piggyback back into town? Sure, hop on. Much obliged, little man. Huh? Hey, Mike, aren't you worried that the judge in Albuquerque's gonna find out you didn't follow the law and serve his court order? Sometimes, Phineas, you just gotta steer your way around the law and do what's neighborly. If that judge comes here a looking for me. Maybe I'll bring him over to Elijah Bardbongans and let him try one of Jesse Cinnamon Pear Puff pastries. They sure taste a lot like justice to me. So as I said, you can get that on Spotify, and uh, it was also rec- uh, recently last night at. Think yes, it was played on the Chicago Comedy Radio, and it's going to be on there every two weeks. So there you go. And uh, as you know, the Potterooni is on the Headstuff Podcast Network, and there are so many other good podcasts on the network. And here's one of them. I'm Gerald Farrelly, and I'm the host of Fascinated. Have you ever wondered about the pop bands you liked as a teenager? What went on behind the scenes? We had played this like grand prank. It sounds terrible, but I'm just so relieved it's over. And then they had this like great idea of getting another girl in who looked like Heavenly. What did they do afterwards? And all of a sudden you're like, that's the end of that. It was all blowing up and it all kind of just unraveled. And I thought it would last forever and it didn't. Check out Fascinated with me, Gerald Farrelly on the Headstuff Podcast Network. That's it. So as I said, not going to do much chatting today. Just going to let you have a listen to me talking to Mary Stokes. Mm-hmm. 
Where, where did you grow up, Mary? I grew up in Rathfarnham. So I'm a Dublin, uh, you know, I'm the youngest in my family of eight uh, kids. So there was five boys and then three girls. And uh, so the family moved um, in the early days of Rathfarnham. So behind the house, kind of, I have some memory of at the back of the house, farmland, kind of down the back garden with cows and all that kind of thing. But of course, all that's well built up a long time ago. Yes, Rathfarnham girl. And then I went to school in St. Louis in Rathmines. Yeah, were you listening to music then as a, a young girl, even before teens? Were you into music? Big time, yeah. So I don't remember ever not hearing music, to be honest. And I mean that genuinely. Um, there was the, the range of influences include the fact that both my mother and father sang and my mother played piano and was a very excellent piano player. So like they sang and played all the time anyway. So that was part of just the expression. My father opened the door singing a song, constantly singing. But there was also then records being played all the time. So for example, for example, the, there were, there were a few that were significant to me at the time. One was an album with Aretha Franklin and it was because of her dress. It's the album. Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. She looks absolutely stunning. It's just a photograph of her. And so I was completely fascinated by that. And and then her voice. But there was another album that was uh, John Lee Hooker, Live at the Cafe Agogo. And that was played a good bit. But I used to be annoyed about that because um, when I was whatever age, four or five, something like that, I realised that there was something not happening that I did, or or rather, that John Lee, for example, doesn't particularly adhere to, let's say, a twelve bar. You know, he moves around, so it could be fourteen, sixteen, eighteen, twenty. It doesn't really matter. Mm. Pattern wasn't there. So as a kid, a small kid, that used to irritate me, like really irritate. Like it was like just I can't stand that. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until kind of like some years later that I kind of got sort of reconciled with that and realised what, in fact, the expression was, you know. But then there was other stuff going on. So, like, my mother would have played piano, but then my brother Dermot, who has, on and off over the years, and on our latest album, Dermot would play. So Dermot was also a piano player, and uh, Niall played guitar. So there was a period of time, again, I'm not sure what age I was or he was, but... He was young enough and there was, uh, Niall was a, a constant presence leaning against the piano, playing his electric guitar without an amp, but you could still hear it. So he did that for hours on end playing the guitar. So I would have joined the choir in St. Louis in Rathmines, which was a very, really very professional kind of choir for a school, uh, you know, mm-hmm. secondary or you know, primary school choir. Uh, Mary Pack would have been some years ahead of me. So she would have been in, in the choir as well. And Francis as well was in it. And, you know, there was, so the, the, the choral tradition was hugely significant. Dermot, uh, Dermot is my oldest brother and Dermot would have been the one, Dermot and Colm and Niall, uh, the three older ones would have been the ones supplying the, the, uh, blues and rock and roll and all of that stuff. When did you decide you'd, uh, you know, want to perform in a blues band. Was there a blues band when you started? 
Uh, well, Dermot originally had had a blues band. blues band. In fact, he had one of the, with Ed Dean, who is a really brilliant guitar player still playing on the scene. Ed Dean and um, a number of other people they had. And this would be the sort of thing that you'd grow up with in the background uh, and understanding because they, he gigged with what was called Blues House when I was quite young. Mm. So Blues House was a band and, and, and then they subsequently, himself and I worked, had another band. So I kind of had an understanding of what performing was and, you know, going on stage and that kind of thing. And I was brought to gigs and stuff like that. But um, what would have happened was, I suppose, uh, I I would have been involved so uh, conspicuously, let's say, with the choral tradition and then with formal vocal training. I did that as well up to grade six. Uh, I was never madly keen on practicing my uh, songs, but I used to do quite well at feshes and that kind of thing. I only won one fesh. I was, I was, I used to come uh, in, in very commended and all that, but um, I won a fesh, which was the Manaw competition in the Father Matthew fesh. And it was remarkable to me because it was an Irish song. So I was actually much more comfortable anyway, because I, you know, singing a German leader for me is like kind of quite an alien thing. It's like German leader are quite, um, they are what they are. They're very pretty songs, but they're of a time that doesn't mean any resonant age with me. So this was an Irish competition, the Manaw competition. And uh, I was singing Oscailga and uh, that was grand until I forgot the words. But I had the understanding of performing. So I just kept going. Mm. <laughs> After then, much to my amusement and amazement, I, I won the competition. <laughs> And the reason I won, which is interesting, because this is part of what I'm, where I went, ended up in blues. The reason why I, I, I believe and what was commented was that it was about expression. So once I left school and I began to pursue other uh, kind of modes of, 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 of delivery of music, I became involved in some folk kind of different, you know, outfits and that type of thing. And I sang jazz for a while. Anyway, I also at that time would have started my relationship with Brian, who Brian Palm is my husband and he's a visual artist, uh, but he's also my harmonica player. And so he's my my partner in music and in life. And in, in at, around about that time, he would have been playing a lot. He was a he was a person who brought his harmonica with him everywhere he went. So as we developed our relationship, he was listening to blues and I was listening and, and my familiarity started to re-engage. And again, it was through that that I started, we started thinking, okay, there was way back, I don't know if you remember, there was a place called the Chicken Club and the, the Hot House Flowers, in fact, way back in the day, was on Pembroke Street. And it was in the basement. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Chicken Club was a great place at one point. It was a short-lived gigs and we did gigs there and it was at that point that I realized really realized the the placing of blues for me being correct being being not that it is exclusive you know because I sing all sorts of other things as well mm. but it is in terms of fitting my personality and my commitments let's say in terms of expression it is the it's the right fit right so, um, started did you uh 
the at what point did you go? This is what I'm going to do. I mean, were there other uh, had you other uh, avenues that you went to first? Like, well, I would have gone from school into college. I did my degree in in psychology, and then and I'm and I still maintain two uh, careers. Let's say because I'm very involved. I I I worked in I did psychology. Um, not with a great um, attention to detail, but I was good at getting exams. So that was kind of helpful at the time. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked now. But um, I then had a commitment interest in guidance counselling because my sister-in-law was, a again, a guidance counsellor and a psychologist. So I've always pursued two things. I've always pursued both music and work in in education and in guidance counselling. So, you know, to say that I would have decided to have a blues band was kind of part of a journey, which really, I guess, that's what life is all about. (laughs) For good or ill. As as Betty Davis said, it's got to be a bumpy ride. I mean, you know, so, you know, it always is. (laughs) Yeah, but like, uh, I uh, was reading there that at, at one point you were doing like 300 gigs a year like constant gigging well you must have a great love of of getting up on stage I'm sure like uh, it's it's not all glamour as we know you know no and and I have to say as well that there is uh, there is that was absolutely the case I mean it was remarkable to us because I do love gigging I also find it very difficult I think many people would share that that is the the person that one is on stage is certainly a part of who you are. But sometimes then it can be confounding because it isn't all of what you are. Mm. <laughs> and and it's hard sometimes because uh, it's my nature, I suppose, to be fairly upfront and straightforward. And and yet, and it, so I don't go to a gig uh, in, in a... I don't particularly... We would we would put a lot of preparation in on one hand, and at the same time, one in blues, one is is relishing a degree of looseness mm. and dynamic, and working with your other musicians. So those pieces, when they're together and when they're working, there is absolutely nothing like it. If on the other hand they're not working, it can be kind of a hellish space to be in. So it's 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 interesting. You know, yeah, it's a weird thing, Dink. Um, because I'm sure, like me, you might have done the corporate gigs as well, which are a nightmare. And no a few, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but look, let's not talk about corporates. What about all the great gigs you've done? So, yes, I saw you. I was at a John Lee Hooker gig in the National Stadium as well. So that must have been incredible to do that gig. Yes, yes, that was incredible, and. Yeah. Follow on from it was even more incredible. So I mentioned earlier on that I had noted John Lee with some irritation when I was five and then grew into understanding and recognizing and really relishing his uh, absolute kind of just just fundamental kind of expression. So John Lee came to Dublin in um, I think it was about 88. Uh, So I was we were really just starting out with our band um, and we were we got the support slot, uh, which was kind of incredible. Now, it was just before the Healer uh, album came out, so it was just preceding that. So on the night in question, I was a little bit, 
I suppose, disappointed that I didn't get to meet John Lee that night. But we did, on the other hand, and again, I say we, myself, Brian, uh, we went out in the wild 1988 Dublin days. We went out around to a few bars with some guys from his band. Yeah. And at the time, I think actually it was Bad Bobs. I mean, I... do you know what, Mary? I was in Bad Bobs as well that night. There you go. So that <laughs> night, on that night, uh, like, again, we 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 were kind of just partying afterwards and we got to know with the, the band. There was a guy, Jim, who was the bass player. Long story short, subsequent to that, we went, we were over in the States. Brian's originally from Connecticut. And Johnny Hooker was playing a gig in the States in this great club called Toad's Place. So we thought, okay, we'll go. Well, yeah, we'll go to Toad's Place. So... It was summertime and, you know, we paid at the door, which was really funny, actually, because I, I had arrived at a point in Dublin where I kind of presumed I'd just go into gigs. So I was like, oh, well, uh, okay, fair enough. No, it's Johnny Hooker, of course. Clifton Chenier was playing support. Johnny Hooker was playing the gig. Crowd of people in. So Toad's Place is a venue where you go in on the ground floor and the dre- and the stage is at the back of the hall there. And then the... the, the um the dressing rooms are downstairs basically so there's a downstairs area so up from downstairs I saw Jim this guy who was the bass player at the time and said to Brian geez there's Jim we were out all night with him months ago whatever so I went over to Jim and I said hey Jim how's it going what's you know Mary from Dublin and he hey would you like to meet Mr. Hooker so I'm like uh yeah that'd be really fantastic Mm. so myself and Brian then went downstairs uh, to the dressing room and ended up in this remarkable, again, sit, you know, these pinch me moments where I, we ended up talking with John Lee for over 40 minutes, almost an hour. Mm. The reason why we were doing that or the reason why that was possible, and I was just talking with someone else earlier uh, on about this, was because the conversation was about the blues family. It was about an understanding and sharing, and there was people we had worked with um, and that we knew of, and there was references. And John Lee was funny because, like, there was, there was at the time, there was a woman playing saxophone in the band with him. So she kind of kept on, kind of, she was trying to tune up her sax, which is, you know, has to be done. Like, you have to blow it a, a good bit. So she was kind of standing behind John Lee while we were talking, um, and... And Jolly turned around and like basically kind of said, "Wow, they got away somewhere else, or you know," and like she moved out as we continued our conversation. So it was like one of these situations that was just engaged in a very real way and really delightful. It was just extraordinary, fantastic situation. Um, was there something about him tuning his guitar? Or some guy tuned it with a tuner. That's right. You remember that. The the band that he was playing with at that time was uh, they were LA um, players um, and very nice. It was uh, so the guitar player. You're absolutely correct because in the dressing room, actually, when we were in the dressing room with him, then afterwards, what was happening was that John Lee would play right, and then this chap would take the guitar and tune it up for him. So then he'd give the guitar back to John Lee and John would kind of basically play and then you'd see him slyly kind of de- just down-tuning it again, right? And, like, again, they were kind of doing a warm-up in the dressing room, as you do before a gig, 
and the, I was busily tuning up John Lee's guitar and John Lee was kind of looking and, you know, with the shades on mm. and kind of looking like, yeah, this is happening again. And he got the guitar back and back and he just kind of like, it's not that he was detuning. He was just getting it for him. Mm. And again, this is part of what was actually interesting in that, I suppose, Carlos Santana and The Healer, that album acknowledged those loose ends that John Lee works in and worked in without trying to impose a blues structure on it. So it was a fascinating thing just to see in, like within a year almost, within that year, there was the difference between someone trying to force the John Lee sound into what was an edible chunk of blues, as opposed to allowing the freedom of the expression to be the character yeah. that he actually sing. You know, and it's fascinating because it's 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 an entire yeah. Just as like I genuinely would say, there's a very strange memory that I have as a kid. There were two albums. I, I like I say, five brothers and lots of different interests. One of my brothers at the time had an album, don't ask me how, but he had an album of Jack McGowan reading Beckett. And <laughs> there were two albums I remember used to irritate me. One of them was John Hilker and the other one was Jack McGowan reading Beckett. Me mother's mother's mother and me father's father's father. Me mother's father's mother. And again, both of those pieces only sat in place in my uh, capacity to, to to take them on board far later. Mm. When I think about it, I think there's a parallel in this sort of like, you know, open-ended, you know, stream of expression and language and just amusement with the sound or the language or the tone or something. And there was something kind of shared. So for whatever reasons, I associate Beckett and John Lee Hooker quite closely. <laughs> wow. There might be something there. There might be a blues song with some Beckett lyrics that could happen. Indeed. Indeed. We have one song that we did of, um, that we haven't, that we've recorded and uh, we'll be, we will be reviewing again where, again, and Brian would be the kind of person who would think like along those lines. So is when you are old and grey from WB Yeats. So we have transformed that into a really dark sort of a, a the last recording we did of it was a few years ago and it's got a dark edge to it. But oh, that uh, sounds amazing, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's very cool. So, I mean, it's just of, of the many, of the myriad projects that we have, mm. that, that continues to be one. But it's a nice recording of it, though. Yeah. And your partner, Brian, uh, I don't know if you were hanging around at the same time, but you played with Rory Gallagher. Were you around then as well? And Brian would have been, so we were hanging around. And so what happened as well was that uh, Brian would have been known as a blues harmonica player with an earlier band than when we started our band. Uh, he was working with the Grywater Blues Band. And then, but was really very well known. So Brian is really good at like he with the energy Brian would have enormous energy to go and find music and be part of music and and see you know not like 
jumping up and saying I have to jam, but just basically where there's a space. So the um, I'm trying to remember. He would tell you better himself. But the the Rory Gallagher track uh, came about, uh, I think, through PJ Curtis, who you may know from Clare. And PJ Curtis was a broadcaster. He's a broadcaster. Excuse me. Now I think living in Spain, but had um, he was producing out of the air for Davy Spillane. So that was the album was out of the air and he was bringing into Davies album, that project, he was bringing in other influences. So subsequent to that, then he invited, uh, asked Rory Gallagher to guest. And then subsequent to that, he, he asked Brian to guest on it, on that track as well. So that's a, it's a great, it's called Litton Lane, which of course, again, anyone in Dublin in the music business at the time knows Litton Lane. The rehearsal. Uh, yeah, 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 there was all sorts of kind of yeah, parts to that, but but it's a great track, and we also knew. I mean, I knew Rory as well. Is that that was one of the? It was one of the early gigs that I was brought to uh, by Dermot and Niall. In fact, as it happened, um, and I I'm not really sure what age I was. We we would have gone to the stadium gigs regularly. And I had another brother, too, like there was another brother, Connor, who was an avid blues fan and um, bought all the chess records and was would buy singles. Connor was a remarkably focused individual. He's quite a unique person and bought every music magazine that was available every week. And he bought singles every week and he bought albums and was particularly uh, interested in like he'd listened to John Peel and he, all this stuff, but he had, he used to go to Rory gigs, but we went to the gig and I remember for some reason, I really, I, I, I kind of have tried to figure it out why I'm maybe 13 or 14 or something. And I was brought to meet Rory that day. He was back in, I wrote about it in the hot press uh, thing about Rory that he was, he was in his hotel room after the gig on his own. And we went in, Dermot and Niall had kind of some discussion that they wanted to have. And I was kind of witnessing the, I was totally kind of blown away, silent, mum, I couldn't say a word. But um, it was an interesting glimpse into the life on the road. And this guy who had, you know, the stadium just jam-packed with everyone absolutely just just you know screaming with their enjoyment and the belief of and the energy and all of that stuff had come across so Rory's a huge influence because he we met him later on over the years and the last time I met him was um sadly was but it was just before he was gigging in uh, Temple Bar uh, at the Temple Bar Blues Festival and we were carrying in some of Brian's paintings. You'll see paintings that these are, these are some of Brian's paintings. But Brian did a whole series of blues paintings. Uh, so we were carrying them in as part of the blues festival into Bloom's Hotel. And uh, so there was no one in. It was in the afternoon. We were gigging that night, I guess, through the whole weekend. And we were bringing them in, myself and Brian, to hang on the wall as part of an exhibition for the festival. And someone was at the bar and... Uh, I kind of again looked and I thought, Jesus, that's Rory. And so it was. So it was Rory. So <laughs> he's, he's very gentle, a really nice guy. And he's like, yeah, who the fuck else will be carrying Sonny Vi Williamson paintings in? <laughs> you, you know, and we had a good, but he was quite, <clears throat> as I said, the stage and the personal, uh, you know, the individual 
Mm. He was quite nervous and quite fragile about performing because he was a shy person. Mm. And so I laughingly like and I I say this laughing of myself and my level of experience at the time I was saying it's going to be great it was going to be great but I was kind of saying people are dying for the gig when he lashed out onto the stage the person that I'd met in Bloom's Hotel Mm. could still have been sitting there in Bloom's Hotel but he this other person was on stage just coming hammer and tongs out to deliver Mm liver he did so you know and again the engagement with Rory and and the playing um Brian worked out on that album he did some nice work with Davy because Davy was a little Davy plays such beautiful pipes and he was a little confounded by where do I go like this is blues where do I go with this because of the blues so if someone's playing a blues in a for example in the key of a the harmonica is in a different key. Okay, so it has to, when you're playing uh, second position, I think. <laughs> but so, so again, uh, the, 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 the pipes getting the right, uh, the scale right. The Brian and Davy had to work that out together. So there were nice pieces to it. Yeah. And just to speaking about that whole thing of, uh, you know, the person on stage and the person off stage, say with Rory or whatever, and uh, and just the life of being on the road and stuff. I mean, I think anyone who's performed for years and years had maybe a year or two where they've lost the run of themselves, maybe. Indeed. And you start thinking you're, um, you know, you're everybody else's Saturday night. That's what they that's what they say if you're on the road. Did, did, yeah. that ever, did you ever go through that period where you had to go, hang on and pull yourself back? It was interesting... You know, because I said that there was two parts of the work that I've always pursued, I've always had a sort of, in in a way, that has afforded me, <clears throat> excuse me, a layer of grounding, mm. which is useful. But there was certainly, uh, during the period of time where we would have been doing the 300 nights a year, I remember at one point I wouldn't have been working at all. So I would have worked part-time in education through most of those years mm. and kind of arranged the daytime work so that I was able to have the freedom. So there was that arrangement in my own mind. It was all very rational. Um, There was one year where we didn't, I didn't do that kind of day work. And I remember coming out at some point in a day, I had to get up early and I came out and I looked around and it was maybe half eight in the morning or nine o'clock. It wasn't exactly 6am, but I came out and I was looking around and I was thinking, Jesus, all these people are out here doing stuff, like running around being busy and doing their life. And and actually my feeling was, and they come to gigs and then they get up and they continue on with their life. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was that moment was interesting. I absolutely ran, lost the run of myself in terms of drinking too much over a period of time. So I stopped drinking um, like 17 years ago and... You know, I, I realized that and I particularly, again, in in the world that we live today, given the difficulties that people have, I'm, I'm very I'm very happy that I don't have a kind of a reliance on 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 having a gargle. Mm. I always enjoyed drinking, but like because I drank with blokes and I was in a band and I was on the road. 
you know, things can, can, um, they take a momentum that you don't really intend. You're not consciously aware that this is happening. And it isn't, it isn't something that you necessarily sit back from until you decide to sit back from it. Um, in fact, I was thinking about this also there recently because there was a song we used to do for a little while, which was a blues, an old blues song called Sloppy Drunk. You know, so it's I would be sloppy drunk than anything I know. And uh, I think it's Sonny Boy Williamson, the first, did the song. But the fact of the matter is, I wouldn't rather be sloppy drunk. And that's what happens. And when you lose the run of yourself and you lose, you lose something of yourself within that as well. And I'm not, I'm not saying my position is, is only right for me. Mm. So I don't mind what anyone else does. I'm, I'm, as long as if you're performing and we would kind of expect when we're performing with people like Brian likes his glass of wine and all that, that's not an issue. Mm. I expect people when we're performing to be on the ball. That's kind of as much as to be on the ball and to be up for it and to have some energy and some. But you lose, if you lose yourself, that is going to be a dangerous road. And it's a dark road. And it's a dark road because everything reinforces the darkness until you pick up the light. Right, yeah. And it took me, there was a number of years where, and it still is within me, and I think it's important that we all know that darkness is within us, but confidence and meeting challenges continue to be difficult. And they're not things that, you know, you don't wake up and I'm not a good leaper out of bed kind of merchant and, and let's get up and do but I I do think sincerely that one can look at the day and say, I'm going to do my best. I figure out what I can do that's positive. I'll take an action of some sort, mm. some uh, satisfaction. So that's where I'll place myself. And then let that be where you are rather than allowing, there's nothing I can do. I can't do anything. Just do one thing. Yeah. Just even for a moment, like even when people reflect even for a moment and think, well, okay, maybe I could do. And it's difficult, I think, particularly now, but um, I, I have great faith in the human spirit. Mm. I mean, you've to be on the road for that long and you're looking great and, <laughs> and have a great positive attitude. It's brilliant. You know? yeah. Well, again, I'm not always looking great and I don't always feel great. And I would say, quite frankly, that I know people would know me over the years i i do think and and you know uh, resilience is a, a word that i feel for example is bandied about a lot and certainly in terms of um the work i do in education and working with adults or people who are trying to manage difficult situations mm. uh, the life in my my familial backgrounds, there were very many, very difficult uh, challenges and issues with, with siblings and my brothers who had difficulties, mental health difficulties. And, you know, I I would have at one point considered that the main thing that I would have just, the, the main descriptor that I would have used of myself was that I was a survivor. 
if you like, that I was beyond that. I was other than that. But that there was one very strong feature that it was about uh, just just kind of getting on with it, if you like, or, you know, moving, moving, moving on, not past something. So the difficulty there sometimes, which is about having capacity to uh, to move on, but to learn. <laughs> so you don't, you're not moving on blankly, ignoring what is going on, but the actually absorbing something and thinking about it but 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 reconciling where you are with it uh, then saying well okay right now right here right now what can I do that is kind of a piece that's reasonably productive or positive so I recognize that I I it is perhaps demanding of the individual and I certainly don't want to go down the sort of neoliberal kind of it's all your responsibility and you know, but that you know that we we have a choice to make is what I would be feeling is is more significant. Yeah, I like you know I I agree entirely that you have to recognise the darkness in you. And I I've been reading a couple of Dostoevsky books recently, which I I would have read Crime and Punishment when I was a young fellow in my twenties, and to be honest, I didn't understand it. And now mm-hmm. I read it and go, oh, yeah, I can even identify with this guy who kills an old woman. It's in all of us. Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, again, I think that that one of the pieces that I wrote about mental health, for example, I mean, again, I would say that the significance of the mental health issues in, in my family were of, they were, you know, of, they were they were very significant. I had two brothers who suffered schizophrenia. And, and as such, there, there was no, um, may I say that, like, there was no way that that could be, that couldn't, you can't deny that in that the condition that a, a young man, two young men, and I would have been relatively young, but like one of my brothers, I didn't, I I would think, for example, the older of the two, I didn't particularly know really well because by the time I he became someone I knew, he had moved into this space of having mental health issues. Yeah. He didn't choose it. It wasn't anything that was obvious. He was one of these people who was supremely intelligent and extremely ambitious and very capable, like did really well, kind of got third in the country or something in his leavings. You know, this kind of territory, like seriously intelligent bloke. But there was the illness is is the difficulty. So then you recognize this person became this person. And and something like Dostoevsky or something like the darkness within us, I think we have to be to some extent measured and recognize that there are that there's a let's say spectrum on everything. That in other words, we all are kind of around the same kind of general makeup. And then are the extremes. So I think sometimes that the darkness is manageable and sometimes it needs support. Mm. And they're different in that kind of thing. And I think manageable darkness, for example, is exacerbated by, for example, hitting the bottle, which was, for example, at a period of time where I would have been kind of thinking, okay, well, and and it was allowing me run down a road of darkness instead of actually standing back and saying, I really don't need to do this. Mm. 
and it's grand. Whereas for others, mental health issues have a, have a, have, have a much more challenging, uh, you know, they are much, they are much greater challenges and need different supports. So it's, it's interesting because it's become such a sort of, um, it's become such a piece of, I'm, I'm delighted to see that people speak of mental health because again, it wasn't something we could speak of when I was growing up. Who else? I think, did you ever perform with Taj Mahal? Are you? Yeah. Yes. When did that happen? Brilliant. Taj Mahal. I, I love him. So there was a period of time, um, where in Dublin and around, it would have been, say, it, it began, was say, around the, the late 80s and then, and until, say, early 2000s, uh, where there was quite a lot of blues artists came over. So we got to know Fats Domino. We got to know, uh, like I say, we, we met BBK. We got to know Fats Domino. We met John Lee. There was this. Taj Mahal came to play in Dublin a little bit later in that period of time. So I'm trying to think what the first year was. He came to Dublin, I think, three times. Um, and <clears throat> the gigs that he did, in each case, we did opened up for him. We did support, and and so he'd be two nights and that kind of thing. And Taj Mahal is the most absolutely engaging individual. Mm-hmm. And like, if you think I talk a lot, like he talks a lot, and it's so like just absolutely completely listenable too. And Taj was the person actually I mentioned earlier on, referring to Brian's working of the and the idea of working kind of traditional or Irish elements into blues, mm-hmm. uh, which explored and worked with Liam and Wayne Lee and a lot of different musicians and we have an acoustic album which we'll be looking at reviewing again in terms of other ways of releasing but uh, Taj was the first person who kind of started saying when are you going to start working on like doing Irish and blues and he was saying that in the context of his exploration of African music and blues so that was kind of, he was such a very generous, he, I should say, is such a generous individual. And he's just such a delightful individual and capable and funny and all of those things. It was a great, again, just as it happens, I was talking, I was writing to someone about this yesterday. My best moment with Taj, which was like, again, one of these, um, in 2001, I think it was, um, the Mary Stokes Band were playing at a festival in England called Bishopstock, which was on the grounds of this castle, Bishopstock Castle. Incredible lineup. So Taj was playing that year, as was Nina Simone, who I was thinking about, uh, as was Van Morrison, as was Gary Moore. All these people playing. Anyway, we were doing our gig. So Saturday afternoon, I think it was, um, so Booker T and the MGs were at the party, which included Steve Cropper and Buck Dunn. So we met Steve Cropper, we met Doug Dunn, and Booker T was around at the party. So anyway, the kitchen door opens in the castle. There I am in the castle from Rathfarnham in Dublin after all my choir and everything else. So I'm in a castle in Bishop's Talk and the kitchen door opens. And who comes in? Only Booker T. So anyway, what I realised was they didn't seem to be responding to each other. So genuinely, without any reservation, I end up saying... Um, Taj, you know, Booker T, Booker Taj. So as it happened, we both obviously knew each other through reputation, but had never met. So Taj then launched into the comment saying to Booker, man, he said, 
1968, you had that single. You were playing down the road. So uh, Taj Mahal grew up in the northeast, in fact, in the U.S. So they were. he was with, he said, I was rehearsing with my band at the time. You were on tour with that single, that hit single. I don't think it was Green Onions. It was another single. But he said, you were playing down the road. And I brought my band from our rehearsal room. And I said, that's how we're supposed to be playing. Yeah. So you influenced us. And again, there was just such, this is why I'm saying that we're all the same. We're at different la- levels and layers and we have different responsibilities and we have different experiences. Mm. But everyone, we're all human and we're all mm. trying to do stuff and do our best. Mm. And it is that belief that carries us on as well, you know. Brilliant. Did you play with Bo Diddley? Yes. Yeah. 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 Again, great. Because Bo was, again, someone who I'd seen, actually, weirdly, when I was in UCT, Bo Diddley played at at one of the arts. uh, You know, they had, like, I I never attended much in college, but I did go to the parties. (laughs) So there was, like, an arts festival, and Bo was playing. So this would have been in the 80s, and Bo was playing, and very few people were calling, went to the gig, and I was like, this is Bo Diddley. And then I saw my brother, I mentioned Connor, I saw him across the room, and I'm over to Connor saying, like, What's he, what do you think? So, Bo Diddley is a huge influence. Just mm-hmm. that sound. I There's nothing that, it's it, just the guitar, but also the Bo Diddley beat. So anyway, we got the opportunity to support him, and again, there was a couple of nights involved in it, depending. but we went in and got to, again, you know, you knock on the door very tentatively on someone's door and uh, Bo was sitting having his grub before the gig. Again, just the normal thing that everyone would do. Anyway, we walk in and like, how's it going? And, uh, you know, kind of then kind of making the links and the connections and saying really enjoy your music. And at the time, as we would do in all our gigs, we actually would have at least one Bo Diddley track. So we have uh, the story of Bo Diddley, mm. one we're doing at the moment. But we also, for years, have been doing a, a one called Dearest Darling. Oh, yeah. So I, we we kind of said, I hope it's okay if we are doing your song. And sometime we, we, we would hope to record it. Uh, so, you know, would that be okay with you? And he would like, like with the, the hat and the glass, and as long as I get my $10. <laughs> And again, he was saying that because he had been ripped off a lot. And so he was saying it with a kind of, as I say, with a wry kind of humor. But, you know, so the, the, the funny story there was we had T-shirts. Mm. Mary Stokes fan T-shirts, God bless them, were. So uh, that gig, they had just come from London. The ba- or sorry, they had just come from somewhere and they, their luggage was lost. So his band had no... Clean clothes. This is, <laughs> this is actually true. And we're like, the local support act band come along. <laughs> We've got t-shirts. <laughs> you can have <laughs> t-shirts. So, but there was apparently a photo in Mojo magazine uh, some weeks later of Bo with under his jacket with, you could see the Mary Stokes t-shirts underneath. <laughs> He was very cool, but you know, again, people are in different places because. But Bo would have been badly. He was stung, you know, and like 
people like Chuck Berry got a terrible mm. reputation. Yeah. It's understandable in that there's there like there are other things about blues, I suppose, that are useful to remember. And I I mean this in in the most genuine way. You know, many many people who are genius blues artists do not necessarily have not had the opportunity for uh, let's say education. I mean, Johnny Hooker's autograph, which is we couldn't get a photograph with him, but we did get an autograph, and you see, he's not someone who was educated in a standard traditional kind of way. And another uh, guitar, Lefty Diz, a guy that we did the gig with, and Lefty wanted a particular amp. And we had another perfectly good amp for him to use, but he really was frustrated because he was like, he wanted this one, whichever it was, whatever Fender, whatever it was that he wanted. Mm. It wasn't really until we kind of stood and thought, hang on, the reason why he wanted it, because he knew the settings exactly as he would put them on the particular amp. Mm. He had a different amp. He didn't have the confidence in terms of the settings. So he was, his, his reading, his literacy and his capacity to kind of manage that new situation was undermined by not knowing the amp. And again, you know, the whole thing of having, like it is the case that people's confidence is fundamentally the the piece that allows them to move around the world or do whatever it is or speak to strangers, you know what I mean, be a be be an active part of our communities of whatever scale. And it's about confidence. So in a guidance context, when I was talking with an adult learner one time, and this was early days, and I was speaking with this lady and I was talking, we were talking about what things she might be interested in doing. And she was saying she'd love to do a particular, whatever it was. Oh, I'd love to do that. And she lived a part of Dublin. And uh, I said, gee, that's gas. I said, you know, there's, there's a place I know just on, such and such a street, you can do that. Exactly what you're thinking about. Mm. She genuinely looked at me like I was a moron and looked and said, ah, Jesus, love, I couldn't be going off foreign. So again, her version of going off foreign mm. was moving from one understood space and community, which was, let's say, in Dublin 1 or, you know, to another space and community in a Dublin too, or Dublin. And that was so expressive to me, not of, I simply was saying, understood, let's see where we can go from here, not to worry. Um, yeah, no, I think it's really, uh, just like I don't, I think people who've grown up in a middle class side don't connect, find it maybe hard to understand that the lack of confidence that someone has who, who's, brought up with a family where you've actually been told probably on a regular basis that you're not worth anything or even all of society is telling you that yes and it's a big problem right now because i mean i genuinely think that um that that unfortunately rather than anything else i think the great divide has become uh, the chasms have become wider and wider and i mean that's what's happened in the u.s i mean 30 25 30 25 years ago First, my first, not the first time I went over, but the first time I went with Brian, there was a gang war in the city he was living in, in or he had grown up in, we'd say in, in Hartford in Connecticut, which is a, a city, big city between New York and Boston. So there, and there was gang warfare, people being killed every day by shoot drive-bys. Mm-hmm. And a friend of ours had a bar 
the, 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 the sort of example would be somewhere like Pierce Street in Dublin, where there's the college there, but there's the local community and then there's the city. Mm. But there were drive-bys on that street and we were in the bar and, uh, in the in the bar and like again it was kind of an irish american-y kind of vibe to the bar because so that was fine drive-by happened they said oh, you better stand, by, stand behind the wall right so we stand behind the wall and subsequently then this irish american guy kind of one of these kind of corduroy jacketed uh tweed capped with his badge and you know nice guy i'm sure he's great you know he probably was involved with the college or whatever yeah he said, so, and he says, how's the war? And he was speaking of Northern Ireland. And I remember at that time realizing that he had no conception that there was a war outside his own door. And that war in America has been bubbling under because it has existed and it continues. And it was, in fact, Always, it has not been ever, none of the issues have been resolved. Yeah. And the only thing that has happened is that Trump pulled it out of, and this is not praise, may I say, but afforded it this kind of visibility. Mm. And now we're in a very difficult space there. And I think in all of society, there's lots of difficulties. But there you go. That's my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. America's a weird place because it is based on uh, there is something they haven't confronted and they're still not confronting it. And you know, ultimately, Joe, what I think is I actually would suggest that these are things that are personal, these are individual challenges, they are community challenges, family challenges, community challenges, societal challenges. Mm. Kind of looking and saying and being realistic about who you are, what you are, what your aspirations are and not just actually having ownership of oneself and, and, and saying, you know, that you can look yourself in the eye with a degree of honesty mm. and not, and a degree of humility, but a degree of honesty and kind of say, yeah, I could do more that I'm doing, or I could do less or, or I can shift things around a little bit. Society is usually kind of a, a reflection of, of the individuals within it. Mm. Uh, to some extent, at least, you know? Yeah, yeah, no. The Trump brought out the same thing in Ireland. You saw a lot of people very confident in being quite racist and... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you could see it, but I, know, but I wonder if it's just something that... And I don't want to forgive it, around, but when re- when the religion, when we throw away religion, that there's something else fills the vacuum, you know? I do think that that is very much the case. I mean, I think that's why the lady that, that I described going off foreign it is it is the case and this isn't this is recognized if you like that society shifts and changes and and the change that's happened in ireland in the last 20 years has been seismic as we all know it hasn't always been 30 years it hasn't always been fabulous despite what the celtic tiger might have tried to persuade people that it was like everything is fabulous and i'm fabulous because i simply exist and i'm irish and i'm in this fabulous life and world and like oh, Jesus would you just relax now take it easy you're grand you're grand but it's a difficult space to occupy because the other side of all of that is a, a global economy for example and a global vision needs to be 
needs to, on some level, recognize that what is marketed as being, you deserve it. Why, why do you want to buy that? Because you deserve it. Mm-hmm. Thinking implies something that people absorb. Mm-hmm. And then they think, I, well, I deserve that. Mm-hmm. And that's a strange equation. Mm-hmm. Because actually, the best we can hope to deserve is respect and reasonable level of kind of uh, capacity to be and to live and to express. And those are luxuries because many people don't have them. That's fucking brilliant. Um, well, listen, uh, it's been brilliant chatting to you. Uh, how are your brothers? They okay? They're in good form. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, again, and I'll say this, it's a yeah, record away, but I mean, it does, it's, it's not something I would get into, but three of my brothers have passed away. I mean, I two, the two brothers who, who suffered illness, they, they decided, they made a, what I consider to be a valid choice. They decided they didn't want to be in the position they were in. Uh, and then we lost Connor through ill health and, and that was a sad thing as well. But so denial, the two stalwarts are, are both in good form. They're like, you know, Niall, I have to say, is like a, he, his, his drive and energy is, and his, his, his keep on going is just mm. brilliant, you know. I mean, and Dermot then on the album, and I had that there, like, Dermot has been a, it, like, my musical kind of, like, partnership, if you like, with Dermot has, has been, through the years, he's always come on to projects or he's been part of things because he's such a brilliant blues piano player. Mm. Uh, and he is so informed on, like, he just knows. He knows blues and he knows how to play and he knows where, how to express. He's a great singer and guitar player as well. But, yeah. but like, Dermot is, is uh, like, he's the one whose knee I stood at, if you like, when I was beginning to learn blues. So, mm. It's it's all his fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, listen, it was brilliant chatting to you, Mary. It was really great. Thank you chat. very much. Yeah, uh, really great chat. So uh, hopefully, I'll see you live. You know, uh, fantastic. Well, we are all looking forward to that, Joe. Best of luck yeah. with everything, and you're doing great, by the way. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Brilliant. Chat. Yeah. All right. Good. Mind yourself. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. That was Mary Stokes. Next week, not sure who I'll be talking to. I might be talking to my friend Fayaz, who's a photographer and uh, has travelled with many great bands doing photographs, including Machine Head and Metallica, um, including them, and many more. So that's next week. All right, see ya, mate. Thanks for calling Toyota. This is Jan. How can I help? Hi. Thanks for telling my family and me about Toyota's national sales event. We got a new RAV4 during the event, and it's been great. Well, that makes me happy. Right now through September 6th, it is the best time to drive off in a new Camry Hybrid, Tacoma, and more. So what are you up to? You know, we took the RAV4 to a great spot, and now we're exploring a cave. 
Amazing. Yeah, my wife talked me into spelunking. I'm actually a complete and absolute amateur. Absolute amateur. Absolute amateur. Huh, I could have done without the echo on that. Toyota's national sales event is on. Visit your participating Toyota dealer today to enjoy every last second of summer. Toyota, let's go places. See your participating Toyota dealer for details. Dealer inventory may vary. Event ends September 6th.